You're listening to The Mix on Civ Mix, hosted by Liz Benjamin and Joe Bonia. So, Joe, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Liz. How has this week been for you? About the same as the week before. And the week before that. (laughs) And the week that next week will be. Yeah. No, I mean, look, each week is a little bit different, certainly, and it was Holy Week, and it uh, presented some challenges. I do have to confess that I did not participate in any video satyrs, but my father did. And he said it was fabulous. Really? He got to buy himself brisket. So there was some Uh upset there. I know. I know. And then for his birthday, I delivered him bagels. So, you know. (laughs) Well, look at that. Aren't you, aren't you just special there? Well, but it's not in keeping with the only eat matzah thing, but I think. No, no. I, I believe a bagel is very leavened in that way. Yeah. Um, well, I do have to say, though, interestingly, I've been thinking a lot about upstate-downstate divide, and that is the subject of much of my discussion with our guest, which we will get to in a moment. But I was thinking a little bit about how you are a transplant, sir. Yes. It's. it's I don't a, know. Go ahead. What, well, I don't know how many years is required until one is officially an upstater. And if we really wanted to touch on a live wire, we could perhaps open the debate of what constitutes upstate, because some of the folks out there who might be joining us perhaps are sitting, oh, I don't know, in Cattaraugus County. And they're saying, you're a downstater, Benjamin. Sorry. I know. But- See, I, I've always ascribed to this philosophy in terms of the upstate-downstate divide. I always saw it basically Tappan Zee and North was upstate for me. And so, you know, take it for what it's worth. Okay. Well, so I am willing to accept you as a full-fledged upstater because you've been here for a number of years now. How many years has it been? Oh, many, many, many years at this point. Not that many. Oh, You're not even that oh, old for Oh, many. but enough, enough. You know, again, again, I went to Catholic school up here and things like that. So, yeah, I've, I've, I, I have good bones here, you know, in that way. You do. Yeah. And you are certainly invested. I mean, oh, I would hope not. so. I would hope so at this point. But I mean, look, I am born and bred myself. I came from New Paltz. I was born at Vassar Hospital. My family is still in that area. And I have always considered myself sort of a defender of upstate and offended on upstate's behalf when it gets slighted. And a lot of people are feeling the same these days, I think. There was a lot of upset, or there has been. I mean, certainly there's been an outpouring of support for people who are struggling in New York City as the epicenter of this virus. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. It's really upsetting. I, I just I don't know that there's enough adjectives to describe exactly what we've been seeing. Uh, and that said, folks upstate are also frightened though the numbers are not the same, certainly. Everybody is afraid. Social distancing is a little bit easier here because we're not on top of one another unless you happen to live, say, uh, in a nursing home or some other densely populated place, which is really a scary experience. But I think this pandemic has brought out the best and the worst in us as these kinds of stressful experiences tend to do. People get to listen to their better angels, as the governor likes to Mm -hmm. say, Um, but they also sometimes let fear get the best of them. And I think that we have seen um, some unfortunate exacerbating of the upstate-downstate divide. And 
And we spoke about that with the lieutenant governor who was kind enough to come on the show with us. Yeah. And I would, I would add to that, that, you know, I've seen, of course, from conversations with, with friends and of course, across social media, yes, you've, you've seen this divide. And I think there's been a lot of misinformation about what's been happening, especially for ventilators and of course, for other resources, PPE and things of that sort. And I think what folks are really just afraid of is the unknown, just because, you know, of course, the situation in New York City is going to be far different than it could be in, you know, that is is than uh, like let's let's say Delaware County or uh, Cataraugus as you mentioned. Um, I think that's really where a lot of the challenges are. Just that you know that level of difference uh, in terms of the situation right there is kind of what makes it a little bit different for folks. You know. Well, the unknown is certainly the part about this that is the most frightening, uh, the information, because, and to be fair to folks who are trying to keep us informed in positions of power and expertise, we've never seen this thing before, right? right. So you keep getting all this different information. Maybe you can get it again. Maybe it's uh, morphing into something else. Maybe you can get it if it's aerosolized. Maybe you can't get it. It's actually just droplets and not necessarily all, all, everywhere in the air. It, it's not clear exactly and until we get a really significant handle on this thing which could take some time the information is changing fairly frequently and then it becomes difficult to figure out what is true and what isn't you know one thing i've been seeing and of course my uh, my lovely mother has you know shared these different uh, articles with me but about the uh, <laughs> the particle spread you know from of course this right and as we discussed last week about the biking and things like that, that, you know, you can be X amount of feet away from somebody. You can even be as far as 40 feet away from somebody. But if you're on this, on a bike, you know, you can still be in that particle spread. And that's, right. and, but you know, this is, the research is only coming out right now about this and you know, whether it's particularly accurate or not, of course it takes time to of course validate and audit that research. But you know, these are the concerns that I think all of us are sharing right now, that we still want to stay outside and be able to be safe. But, you know, when you hear about particle spread, I mean, it's... Well, it's, what's particularly disappointing, I think, is what we did see this week. I mean, at some point, and you know from your experience, you deal with a lot of folks who are in the entertainment and the hospitality industry. And at some point, you just got to say, you know what, we got to call an audible here and we can't hold the Williamstown Theater Festival, even though it's so far away from right. now, or it feels so far away from now, you've got to pull the plug so you can salvage some aspect, perhaps, of what your investment was and, and recoup things. Now, they're, I think, going to be putting some stuff online, for example, but, you know, we have all of these amazing cultural offerings that make upstate New York such a pleasure and a unique place to be in the warmer months in that very short period when we actually get a summer, we don't really usually get a spring per se, although we're sort of getting one this year. A little bit. That 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 said, you know, all of the things that make our lives so rich are not something we can look forward to. And that, I think, that disappointment weighs heavily on people. If you can't look forward into the future and say, oh, there's a date that I can really put my hopes on, you know, it's it's it becomes tough. Yeah, I had a conversation, a conversation earlier today regarding, you know, when does it become okay? And I was using the example of with Hurricane Maria, 
uh, in Puerto Rico and having gone to Somos. And it was the year after where I think people were still just seeing if it was okay to go down to Puerto Rico. And then the next year you saw that more, more and more people came out. I think that will be the same thing we see with events and festivals and concerts and of the like, where you'll have the few brave few that will attend. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's going to take some time. You know, I'm looking at the, the summer right now. I mean, of course, right now here in Albany, Tulip Festival has been postponed. I know they're looking at possibly sometime in the summer, but that still might be too early. You know, the SPAC mm-hmm. schedule in terms of their events and with, you know, Live Nation, you know, who knows? Same thing with the TU Burning Center, Man. They called off Burning Man. Which that's just, yeah, I know. And so with all of these different events, I mean, we're losing that cultural fabric, right? And, you know, when will it be okay to have an event? Well, when will it be okay to have a festival? And what do you do even when you want to have one? Do you check everybody's temperature? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the, the litmus test for you to even attend these events? And then, of course, inside right. these venues, they're not built for social distancing. If you're going to be you know, on top of people just like you would be on the plane, you know, what do you do? You have, what, two people in one row and then three people in another row. I mean, so there's a lot of different variables there. But I think we just need to be able to ease into something. And I think yeah. the more folks that, um, the more time we have to learn about this uh, this virus, and of course, you know, the more folks who are discharged and they've recovered, then I think there's more of an explanation of what, what exactly takes place with us. I think that will certainly help in that way. The am- The amazing ability of people to adapt, though, I mean, today I went to Whole Foods. And so did I. Yes, I, I was there. Gosh, you know, I, I we swear, miss each we're, other. We're, we, we're again, we are practicing <laughs> maximum social distancing by time and everything that way. Well, yeah. Were you when you got there? Was there a line and everyone was calmly waiting outside and there were pieces of blue tape against the wall and they all sort of stood six feet apart and people were wearing their masks? Not that bad. No was, Tra- no Trader was Joe's, yes. Trader Joe's. Yeah. I saw that. That was the case there. Yep. No one was angry. No one was. You know, I mean, people felt, you know, they exchanged some hellos. It's difficult to see if a person's smiling behind a mask. Of course, they smize. They right. smize at you. <laughs> a little bit of a, they give you a little bit of a wave or a, or a head nod yep. or a thumbs up. But, you know, people just kind of, they needed to get to the grocery store. They needed to restock and they did what they had to do. And they got in and got out. No one was socializing or lingering in the aisles. I certainly, I think I was like record shopping. I was in there <laughs> 10 minutes maybe, you know, and got enough for the week and, and went home. But we are adaptable creatures. It is amazing to me. And that actually has a downside because I fear becoming too comfortable in my social distancing habits. Will I remember how to talk to you? When right. I see in, you person, in person, right? I don't I know. Don't, I might not. I have to, you're going to have to, I'm going to have to re-educate myself and we'll all have to figure out, we won't hug anymore. I mean, I saw our contributor, actually, Sylvia Lilly. I saw her at the uh, Albany Muni, which is a great place to walk your dog. And they are doing an amazing service. I have to give a shout out to them for letting people um, walk their dogs off leash there. And, and people are generally good about picking up. They could be a little bit better, but it's a really wonderful thing that we have available to us. And I saw Sylvia and wanted to give her a big hug. I hadn't seen her in a long time. And you can't and do it. No, we didn't do it. We stood six feet away and sort of shouted at each other. Yeah. And it's a, you have to do at least an air hug. And, but you know, I, I guess the, the glimmering part of hope right there. And you mentioned that at least Henry was, I, I assume had a good time. Henry had a wonderful Oh, time. I'm sure. Say. Social distance at all. He sniffs. Oh, he doesn't care. Like nobody's business. He doesn't care. He's right up in there. <laughs> 
Um, you know, right there. <laughs> no. And so speaking of the same thing, so I spoke with, uh, Jackie Cohen from the strap hangers campaign and, right. you know, Jackie and I have known each other for a number of years, went to school together. We had a radio show together and, you know, I went to her wedding in California, the whole thing. Right. And so, um, you know, besides of course, like, you know, I can't even see a, a good friend of mine, but we did talk about, of course, the, the issues involving transit and, you know, certainly that impact it has on the state budget. Um, you know, what do you do about congestion pricing? Do you still move forward forward with it? You know, based upon, of course, the economic realities we have right now. So, you know, her conversation that we had earlier um, that you'll be able to listen to in a little bit, it was certainly enlightening in that side. So, um, well, before we get on with it, I do want to note, I mean, the MTA has just gotten walloped in terms of illness. You know, they have quite a number of people who are doing yeoman's work. It's an essential business and not all of us, as you and I have discussed before, are lucky enough to be able to work from home. Some people have to go out and work and they have to get to work. And in order to do that, they have to take mass transit and mass transit continues to operate in New York City. It is um, frightening for a lot of people I know, and yet they get up and they do it. They face their fears every day. And the MTA is, is doing its best, but they've been hit very hard. So well, our thoughts, of course, with them. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, of course, during, you know, Superstorm Sandy and, of course, with mm-hmm. Irene, you did see that the system did shut down. But, of course, this is a wholly different sort of disaster in this way. Right. But it must continue right. because, of course, you need to get healthcare workers where they need to get to. So. And other workers, well, of course. Let's move on and talk to and hear our discussion with uh, the lieutenant governor. She is sheltering in place, more or less. She's uh, do, she is going to her office in Buffalo, but she's uh, uniquely situated to discuss this situation in uh, the western part of the state. And the silver lining, she says, is that she gets to spend a little bit more time than she used to at home. Because if you know the lieutenant governor, that woman is energy in a jar. She just goes and goes and goes. So to not be traveling all around the state is really a, a unique experience for her. For somebody who goes, again, for her that, that has, you know, she has 5, 10, 15 events a day in different parts of the state. And then all you can do now is go to your office, you know, in downtown Buffalo. I know she lives at Canal Side. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wholly different reality. And I think, you know, of course, well, she had to adapt like we all had to adapt. But she's got Upstate's back. That's she right, she does. Ready to know that she is definitely looking out for Upstate and holding it down. So let's take a listen. Lieutenant Governor, it is so great to hear your voice. I'm just sorry I can't see your face. This is really strange for us, Liz, after spending many, many events together and uh, certainly a lot of interviews over your distinguished career. So I, I miss seeing you in person as well. So tell us, where are you? Are you in the Buffalo area? I camped out in upstate New York because uh, we all wanted to adhere to the social distancing. And I have an office in Buffalo where I've spent more time here in the last few weeks than I did in my entire career for five years. So uh, I'm spending a lot of time in the office. I come here early in the morning to do radio interviews and continue media interviews and video conferences and touching base with elected officials all over, really reaching out to, I just did a sexual assault seminar. I did talk Mm -hmm. to Yesterday, I talked to small businesses, you know, really trying to manage the response upstate and make sure that every community gets what it needs. So it made sense for me to be physically in Buffalo, but also a treat for my husband that he actually sees me more than three days a week. So this has been quite an adjustment for us. I, I'm actually home at night these days, but um, that's, that's actually a, a nice bonus for me. 
Before we, we get into the response, I, I really just need to ask, are you okay? Is everyone healthy and safe? We are all good. We've, we've really been really strict about the social distancing. Uh, my husband runs out and gets groceries and packs up a lot. He, he takes his reusable totes and he uh, takes a face mask when he goes out. And so, you know, we're, we're really being strict about this because I, I, by nature, I'm so in contact with thousands of people and had been you know, January, February, early March until this started. So I was cognizant of the fact that I needed to really uh, isolate from people and have seen over the last few weeks that we are in perfect health. We are blessed. And, uh, and just that may, reminds us that particularly during this Easter Passover season to just reflect on, on my gratitude for the health we have and the ability we have to be able to be with each other. And, and uh, it's been a huge adjustment though. I mean, it's just, it, it hits everybody differently, but I would say we're not at all suffering compared to what other people are experiencing. No comparison to people dealing with the loss of life, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, loss of uh, just a sense of normalcy. But I feel very focused on what I'm doing. So my days are extremely busy. So I don't worry about you know, cleaning closets or starting a new craft or anything else with my extra time because there is no extra time, but that's okay. There's nothing I'd rather be doing than, than work with the governor and help the people of New York through this crisis. Can you speak a little bit to, it's really great that you are upstate because I feel, and, and, and I know you've seen it, there's a great frustration. I, I think that one of the downsides, there's many downsides to the pandemic, of course, the loss of life being the most significant one, but a, a really uh, unfortunate one that I've seen is the exacerbation of the upstate downstate divide. Now, of course, New York City is the epicenter, but there's a lot of fear. Um, there was an anti-New York City sentiment among a lot of folks upstate who were unhappy with the governor's decision to say, repurpose upstate ventilators, or the message that was sent to folks who have second homes, don't come here because you know we don't have the services to help you, but also we don't want you to infect us. Are you disappointed by seeing some of that sentiment? I'm disappointed in some of the people who've expressed that, but you know, when I post on social media, I get a lot of comments from Western New Yorkers, what can we do to help New York City? And that's what I focus on. There's certainly people try to make some, you know, political hay, you know, the Republicans ran with this whole idea. They're going to be coming in the middle of the night. They've already stolen a whole bunch of ventilators, 50 of them left with the uh, National Guard in the dead of the night. I mean, there are people just making stuff up and it was pathetic and it was disgraceful. And I have been here in upstate to reinforce our message, which is we are leaving no state behind. And yes, we, our brothers and sisters in New York City are suffering and we should share that pain and not feel that they're part of a different country or a different state for God's sakes. We are all New Yorkers. And I have seen outpourings of support from people all over upstate for, and sympathy and people wanting to send help and resources to New York City. So I think it's been overblown. You know, certainly what catches the attention is are the people that are coming forward and and really showing a dark side, if you ask me, that they should not be talking about because, you know, how would we feel if, you know, next major snowstorm when Buffalo and Syracuse and Rochester are blanketed by snow and we want the utility trucks and the help and the generators to come from downstate? I mean, they never say no, they're always there to help us. And I think we just needed that reminder that we will make sure that every single person in upstate has the health care they need. They'll have the ventilators they need, they'll have the bed they need. The governor and I have personally said we'll make sure that happens, and I am here physically to make sure that I can be a direct conduit to this. But that I think people will regret the fact that they even 
played into a so-called upstate downstate divide. And let's get over that quickly. There's no time or place for those that dissension division right now. We need to pull together. Are you concerned? I mean, we are seeing, we saw three historic high days of deaths in New York City, yet the hospitalization number and the intubation numbers apparently uh, are flattening, which indicates some silver lining, if you will, and a potential flattening of the curve. But the governor has also said that potentially the curve will be, or the apex will be later in upstate because the virus hit more severely in the more um, uh, po densely populated area, which of course is the five boroughs. Is that a concern? I am seeing, uh, you know, death numbers tally in Erie County, for example. Uh, they're nowhere near as high, but also the population is slower. We watch this minute by minute, and I have to tell you that uh, we did foresee this, that the peak would hit earlier in New York City, where because of the density and truly the number of people coming from other countries, you know, and it turns out a lot of New York was uh, started because of travelers coming back from Italy and Spain and European countries. And so we knew that that was going to happen, and we foresaw that upstate would lag behind that. But we believe that because of the social distancing measures in place, New York State upstate has had a longer time to prepare and to stop the spread. I, I think the numbers would be higher. They're, they're, they are creeping up, no doubt about it. And certainly the most vulnerable in nursing homes and in assisted living centers where one person comes from the outside and, and is contaminates the rest of the staff or go, it starts spreading like wildfire through a nursing home. And that's what really what we're seeing when the numbers start going up in our increases. It's the majority of people uh, who are losing our, of an older age. But it doesn't mean it's going to peak upstate New York anywhere near the numbers of New York City. We just have, it's easier to socially distance when the subway is not your main means of transportation or you don't live yeah. with thousands of people. So I think that's an upstate advantage and that's something that I think is gonna keep the numbers from really getting out of control. And also our hospital bed capacity is there because we stopped the elective surgeries and the, as well as asking every hospital to ramp up by 50% or to 100%. So if the need arises where there is a surge in any upstate community, the hospital system will be able to handle it. But if they don't, we know exactly how many each hospital has in terms of ventilators, how many are in ICUs. We are ready to deploy people to wherever the problem arises and where uh, the next hotspot may or may not be. You bring up elective surgeries, which is uh, a very interesting sort of byproduct. You know, you have people here who are uh, not able to go in for surgeries or delaying surgeries that uh, they might have been had planned. And as a result, you have some healthcare facilities that are actually engaged in layoffs uh, and they're experiencing financial downturn, much like, of course, the rest of or most of the rest of, of the economy. Um, and also that was uh, in the budget, the governor was very, really, he, he, he was very insistent on, on Medicaid cuts and, and uh, some people criticized that. Did you feel that that was also necessary and you know, given the, the outlook for finance in this, the finances in the state, do you think that more cuts are on the way? I mean, that seems like a, a sort of foregone conclusion. Well, every sector of our economy has been hit with less revenues coming in, starting with the state of New York. And it does make sense that hospitals would see less money coming in when there's fewer surgeries, but the alternative was far worse. If we had allowed people who may have had you know, the coronavirus not even know they were a carrier, 
show up to have hip replacement surgery that could be put off a few months, they could have spread through our hospital system and, and infected people who are on the front line. We had to protect them. We had to protect the doctors and nurses and also just to make sure that the capacity would be there to handle an influx of cases. Again, one nursing home can send literally you know, scores of people to an ER at the same time. We, we couldn't allow for there to be people recovering from elective surgery in that ER or using life-saving equipment at that time. So, so that decision had to be made. And yes, there is collateral damage, just as there's collateral damage to every sector of the economy. And that's why our request to the federal government, which did not give us enough money in the first go-round of the stimulus bill, it did not help states like New York that are on the front lines and spending an enormous amount of money to combat this. We didn't get anywhere near the money we should have had. In fact, their formula in the congressional bill that was signed by the president allocated $1.2 billion equally to every state, regardless of whether or not they even had a coronavirus case at all. That was absurd. I mean, the response should have been allocate the money here. And we are hoping that the next round, we're pushing hard, will have more money for hospitals to offset their losses and also reimburse them for the extraordinary measures they've had to take, accumulating more protective equipment and paying for overtime. So we hope more money will flow to the states, to the hospitals, to the localities, as well as to small business and the unemployment benefit program. The economy, of course, the financial picture for the state would look better if we could get the economy back up and running, in, at least in certain areas. The governor has spoken of that um, some. The president has spoken of that. I mean, the president would like to do it next month. Uh, I know that a lot of public health experts are cautioning that that is not a good idea. Um, but your feeling about how this might work, I mean, particularly upstate, I know there were some counties that had for a while there are no cases of COVID-19. And I, I did see some reports of folks who were frustrated by the complete economic shutdown. Um, do you imagine that this will go in stages and could it be that parts of upstate open before other parts of the, of the state do? That has to be determined. And we have to make sure that you know, we have testing, widespread rapid testing available. So we know whether or not there's an emerging hotspot. We may think that you know, part of the North, I mean, we may think that Watertown is, is clear. They haven't had a high increase in numbers. We don't know that there's not people already, you know, walking among individuals who just haven't shown symptoms and it hasn't spread yet. So it, it is far too early for us to talk about that any dates and certainly anyone who says May 1st or any arbitrary date is not looking at the data and the trends that we're experiencing. We don't know the impact that'll occur in upstate New York, but the last thing we want to have happen is to reopen sectors of our economy and get everyone back to work on this sense of security that's not based in fact and realize that we did it too soon. And then we have to go back to square one, start mm -hmm. isolating people, start shutting down businesses. That would be cataclysmic. We cannot do that to our economy. And with the support we're trying to offer, Lifeline through the small business loans and assistance, we're trying to help people hang on. And, and I know how hard this is. The unemployment numbers just feel like a kick in the stomach that, to know that so many people who just through no fault of their own are now going to not have a paycheck to take care of their families. It is a painful time. But the last thing we want is to go back and do it again because we jumped the gun and people said, well, this one community doesn't have any cases, so let's go back. Uh, there is a small community in, in uh, Westchester that didn't think they had any cases either. And all of a sudden they became a hotspot for the entire nation. And so that's what we have to be careful against this complacency that might set in like, oh my gosh, we finally flattened the curve. But when you flatten the curve at a level where 
hundreds of people are still dying on a daily basis. That's nothing to high five about. I mean, we're not out of the woods yet. And that's why the social distancing has to continue. And the patience of everyone who's so anxious to get back to work, we are doing this to protect their health and their lives. And we have to continue going forward with this path until the data dictates that there's an opportunity to get us going again and having mass testing to know who already had the virus. And if you've had it, we have to be sure that you cannot contract it again or spread it to someone else. And once we know that, we will know that there's individuals who can go back into maybe specific industries where there's not that close proximity of people to each other. And I'm working as chair of the regional councils mm. on what that strategy is going to look like. And not, you know, it's not just New York City focus, which has its unique industries. It has Broadway, it's got Wall Street, I'm in different sectors that don't exist upstate. But I've been in constant communication with the leaders of the business community all over. Um, talking to the chambers of commerce, talking to the business council, and asking for their advice as well as what they want to see and how we get this going again. And truly, the question is being asked: We don't ever, we don't know what the new normal is going to be, except that it'll be right. very different from the pre-coronavirus era. And what industries can we be focusing on that can help restart the economy? Industries that we had not been engaged in before, or that we can ramp up. And the last thing we want to ever see again is. New Yorkers and Americans being held captive to supplies coming from a place like China, when for God's sakes, we should be making them in our own state. And I think there'll be a rethinking about that as well as really what the workplace looks like. A lot of people are now accustomed to working at home. What does that mean? What does that do for childcare for people? Does it take off some of the burden on families? So there's a, an opportunity now to reimagine a different future and those conversations are starting now, not when we finally get back to work. And I'm, and I'm involved in that as well. We're, uh, unfortunately, we're going to run out of time. But speaking of the future, the governor has been, his national profile is sort of off the charts. I, his international profile might very well be off the charts. And uh, particularly in the absence now of a Democratic primary, because Bernie Sanders has decided to bow out, it appears that uh, Joe Biden has a lock on the nomination. There had been talk there briefly about, you know, oh, Andrew Cuomo should be governor. Maybe Andrew Cuomo should be vice president. Maybe he should be attorney general. Maybe he should be secretary of state. If he goes, um, that makes you the first female governor of New York, does it not? Liz, I think you've got way too much time on your hands. To... I do. I do. That's the whole problem. <laughs> Liz, uh, the governor has been firm that he loves what he's doing. He knows there's a He's played a major role in, in showing leadership and what it looks like at a time when we felt there has been a void of leadership and, and the country appreciates that. I think the rest of the world appreciates that strong leadership. But this is how Andrew Cuomo has always been. When he seizes on an issue, he will be laser focused. He will use data, not emotion. He'll make sure we get through it. And I, I've seen him operate like this for years and years. So this is not unusual for us as New Yorkers who know him well. It's just that the rest of the country gets a chance to see truly leadership under pressure at a time when we need it most. Uh, as for me, you know I love being Lieutenant Governor. The only thing I wanna do is get free so I can get back on the New York State through a, go back to my towns and communities and you know, take a flight to New York City and reconnect with the people that I, I love so much. And uh, we are in both in a very good place, no doubt about it. 
Yeah, he has, though, been. It is interesting. It does play to his strengths. It's true. I've known him for uh, a long time and watched his career. He he does uh, really thrive under pressure and in my management of this kind of emergency. I've never seen it on this scale, of course. But he also has spoken very movingly of his own uh, family situation. He's got two of the girls with him uh, in the executive mansion and, of course, the dog. Uh, and you have um, also spoken about your family and the time to reconnect. So it is a little bit of a benefit um, as long as we all don't, you know, go crazy and give each other some space while, you know, quarantining all together. <laughs> talk about it, you know, the governor reflecting, you know, the personal emotional struggles he goes through worrying about his mom and his daughters. And, you know, just it, it, I think people need to see that politicians like this are actually human. Uh, we do have emotions. We, we do get stressed out. We do worry about people. We worry about, I call my father, had to teach him how to use, you know, the FaceTime on his cell phone so I can see what dad looks like. I can, I can tell if he's eating well and he's alone in Florida trying to take care of himself. And it's, it's mm. hard for us. And I think we're all struggling with that disconnection. You know, I would have seen him probably several more times by now. And I just, there's this underlying worry that even as if, no matter what your office is with your governor, lieutenant governor, you're still a human being who has family and loved ones and, and also this sense of responsibility. It, it is deeply painful for the governor every single day to get out and announce those numbers. And I feel the same way. And I feel the same way after 9-11, you feel sometimes powerless and how you channel the position you're in to set aside your own emotions and to power forward and, and to be have a clear-eyed vision for where to take your state at a time when it's so easy just to get caught up in all the rumors and when are we going to do this and when are we going to do this. If, when you have a strategy, when you have a focus, we can get through this. And, and I, I have the same traits. When, when the tougher it's, when the going gets tough, the tough get going is what my father always told me. And I think we're seeing that on display in our administration uh, throughout this crisis. Well, the best thing that you can do, Lieutenant Governor, is stay healthy and stay safe. So we thank you very much for your time as always. And hopefully the next time we talk, we will be uh, at least able to uh, stand at a safe distance apart, but uh, smile at one another. Be good. Thank you much, Liz. Take care now. Be well. Are you looking to reach a diverse audience? Advertise with CivMix today. Visit CivMix.com to learn more. Are you ready to rise and shine? Read up on the latest news and happenings taking place in your community each weekday morning on CivMix.com. Sign up to receive Rise and Shine in your inbox. Sifmix, it's where it's at. Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on Sifmix.com. Jackie Cohen is a mass transit advocate for New York City, currently working as the campaign director for Nyperg's Strap Hangers campaign, fighting for a more equitable transit system. She is also a weekly contributor to Be Heard on WHCR in Harlem for which she has earned the 2016 New York Press Club Award for Best Radio Commentary. She joins us today on The Mix. Welcome to The Mix, Jackie. How have you been? I am good, Joe. How are you up in Albany? Oh, it's a ball of sunshine up here. <laughs> you know, uh, same, same here in Brooklyn. It's, I uh, figured. It's truly, what a time to be alive. You know, I'm, I'm imagining your place in Brooklyn to be almost like the house from uh, I Am Legend, where it's all barricaded right now. <laughs> That's more or less. More or you're, less. You're right. 
Yeah. So Jackie and I went to the University of Albany together, and actually we had a, a radio show uh, on the in the morning called Joe and Jackie in the Morning, thus the name yes. in the morning, on WCDB. And it was a wonderful show. I thought it was. It was a good time. It was a great show, although I have to say you've really upgraded uh, co-hosts for this one. Well, you know, yeah, a little bit, right? <laughs> we we can all agree. <laughs> yeah, but then you've you've also done uh, radio after that with uh, Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio, which now is what it's a uh, Be Heard Radio, Be Heard Talk. Yes, I think so. There's been a bit of a rebranding, but yeah, I did a great show. Um, it's still on the air on um on Harlem Public Radio um, with uh, our friend Stanley Fritz, who is political director, I think that's his title, it at is, Citizen yep. Action, um, and Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs. Yeah, we, we had a lot of fun with that show. As it's well. on it's on WHCR, right? WHCR in Harlem, yeah, that's go. right, that's on Sundays. Right. Although I think they've been broadcasting from home through podcasts because, you know. That's no probably the safe way of doing it, yeah. That's right. Um, so let's talk about your work world. Now you are the campaign director for the strap hangers campaign. Can you tell our listeners right. a little more about what the strap hangers campaign does? Yeah. So the strap hangers campaign is a 40 plus year old project of the New York public interest research group. Um, we're transit advocates. So for over 40 years, um, we at the strap hangers campaign, not me personally, because I am very young, but the strap hangers campaign has been fighting for better, more equitable, um, more reliable public transportation for uh, for New York City's 8 million daily subway bus and paratransit riders. And of course, with that role, you're advocating to the New York City government. You're also, of course, coming up here to Albany to, to lobby for, of course, transit in- issues. And we just passed the state budget. It was a budget, you know, I think everybody would probably say a budget done during this duress of the coronavirus situation. Uh, what's your take from, of course, the budget this year? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, it's tough, right? Because uh, of course we wanna see more, more money in the budget for transit. Um, the MTA's financial situation has been dire for a number of years. And, um, you know, before this crisis even started, the MTA was projecting a billion dollar operating deficit coming up in the next few years, right? So um, our goal in, in Albany this year was to get more money to, to fund operations, especially because the MTA is going um, through a significant redesign of its entire bus network, which hasn't happened in over 50 years, right? Like not in 50 years has the MTA, has anybody at the MTA looked at the bus network and the bus map and said, do these routes make sense? Is this how commuters are traveling to this, uh, you know, in, in 2020, right? Um, Everything has been thrown on its head now, right? Um, and there's really, you know, uh, we need more money in the budget, of course, but we're we're definitely more than ever in desperate need of federal funding to make sure that the MTA has the money that it needs moving forward. Um, you know, 50% of the MTA's operating budget comes from fares and tolls on the MTA's bridges and tunnels. And that money has seen a tremendous decrease. I think the MTA is losing around $120 million a week or something like that as ridership drops and ridership has dropped around 90% system-wide um, since this crisis has started. So. Um, you know, we're we're monitoring the situation, but it's it's clear that the MTA is going to need billions and billions of dollars in, in stimulus money um, 
to, to really be able to navigate out of this crisis, to be able to continue to provide critical service in the time being, but also be there to provide service for people once this crisis is over. There was a letter that you, uh, your organization, along with the Writers Alliance and the Trans Center and the New York Immigration Coalition said sent to the MTA uh, regarding the redistribution of service to, to low-income and essential workers. Uh, why is that in particular of particular importance to your organization? We want to make sure that people are provided with safe and reliable service where they need it, right? And we've seen, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're dealing with a situation down here where buses and subways are crowded. And this is due to a number of factors. This is due primarily to the fact that MTA employees are getting very, very ill. I believe after healthcare workers, transit workers are the second most likely to be infected with COVID-19. And what we've seen is I think as of um, two days ago, 41 MTA employees have died and over 6,000 have fallen ill or in self-quarantine. So service has taken a major reduction. Um, you know, in part because employees cannot get to work. And so we're asking the MTA to provide service for frontline workers where they need it the most, um, not to provide traditional, I mean, they're not providing traditional service by any means. They're working very, very hard to make sure that they're, um, they're running with the capacity that they have. Um, but what we know is that 75% of all frontline workers in New York City are people of color, 60% are women, 50% are immigrants, right? We need to make sure that we're providing those communities with the most service so that those riders are not forced to stand on crowded subways and buses just to get to their essential jobs each day. So with that too, I mean, there's also also the aspect of paratransit. And, you know, I was very familiar with paratransit because, you know, my grandfather, before he passed away in Brooklyn, he had utilized it for um, you know, things that he needed as well. So what's the state of paratransit in this situation right now? Well, the state of paratransit is <laughs> just generally in New York City um, has not been great. We, it, it, paratransit is um, the, in New York City, it's called Accessoride. It is federally mandated by the Americans with Disabilities Act. So the MTA must provide service for riders um, either due to age or disability. Um, for, you know, for riders that cannot take traditional transit service like subways or buses. Um, and this is particularly necessary in a city like New York, which has a, a truly inaccessible subway system. Less than a quarter of all subway stations are accessible. And that's when the elevators are even working and they're notorious for breaking down or, or being in service, so or not in service. So, um, you know, we've been working very heavily advocating for reform to Accessoride. Um, and we were successful in winning a pilot program that provided on-demand service for paratransit users, meaning that traditionally, and Joe, I'm sure you're familiar if your grandfather took Accessoride um, and my grandparents took it regularly, they would have to book trips 24 hours right. in advance um, just to get to the doctor or to the grocery store or to work, right? Um, the on-demand e-hail pilot program creates a, um, a system of, of freedom, right? Where riders can book a trip when they need to take a trip. Because imagine having to book your seat on a bus or on the subway every time you wanted to get to work or go out to a movie with your friends, right? It's it's ridiculous. And it's, it's really limiting the way that one is able to live their life. Um, before this crisis started, the MTA announced that it would be cutting back its on-demand e-hail pilot and, and 
reducing it in scale, limiting the number of trips that people could take on it per month. There were only about a thousand people enrolled in the program and we had been pushing for a greater expansion of it. Um, what's was one uh, good thing, I guess, that's come out of this crisis is that the MTA has said that they are postponing that, um, that rollback of the pilot. I think it's something that we should still be afraid is coming, right? I think that unfortunately, as the MTA is hit with this, with this tremendous um, financial burden of losing fares, losing tolls, and, and taking a huge hit to its operating budget, accessibility is often the first thing on the chopping block when the MTA's finances are in dire straits. And so I think we can expect major changes to paratransit um, and unfortunately to accessibility improvements within the MTA um, if we don't get the money that we need to, to uh, keep things moving. You, you brought up a, a good segue here about tolling. And I know uh, your organization, in addition to many others, was were a, a big proponent to the establishment of congestion pricing. And I know there have been discussions uh, regarding a delay in implementation for that just because of the, the sheer economic impact that uh, we're all facing right now. Um, what's your sense of you know, how that will go? Because I think what we'll see, I mean, what we're seeing right now is that nobody's driving on the streets right now. You pretty much have uh, public transit. You have a couple of folks, of course, the, the bad actors out there who unfortunately are uh, taking advantage of the situation and they're recklessly driving. But um, yeah. I assume that you're still in, in favor of keeping the plan for congestion pricing moving forward. Oh, we need it more than ever. We need it more than ever to be able to move forward from this from this crisis. Look, like the congestion pricing, the plan is that congestion pricing is supposed to go into effect in 2021. Um, there was some um, discussion about the federal government potentially holding it up. We think that's regardless of what the federal government is doing, we're, we're still looking to the governor to really push this plan forward. And we desperately needed the money raised from congestion pricing, which would be about $15 billion over 10 years to pay for the MTA's capital plan, right? Every five years, it put out it puts out a capital plan, which is a list of all the, the infrastructure projects that it's planning to build. And this is what would pay, th these dollars would help pay to re-signal the subway system, to build new elevators at, at subway stations, to make them accessible. Um, the list goes on and on. And these these changes are desperately needed um, prior to the crisis, right? Moving out of this, we are going to need a well-functioning transit system, right? The, our, our, the MTA is really the economic driver of New York City as a whole. And if we don't have a functioning transit system moving out of this crisis, we're, we're never going to recover. And so I think that it's more important than ever that we have a firm congestion pricing plan in place moving into 2021 so that we're able to recover more quickly. You know, one thing that's, of course, of my mind right now is that, you know, upstate transit systems are, of course, in an entirely different situation than, you know, what we're facing with the MTA. I know with CDTA, they've already made adjustments for how folks can get into their buses uh, instead of using the front, unless you have um, mm -hmm. you know, accessibility needs, you know, then you still use the front of the bus. They have now, um, you know, the middle of the bus uh, entry points right there, uh, but they're not collecting, of course, any fares. So, you know, you're going to see down the road um, the sheer budgetary impact to these agencies uh, by not collecting fares. But I know uh, one particular thing that's different from the upstate systems versus, you know, the MTA is that uh, the MTA has this program called Fair Fares. And I know that there was some discussion with the mayor's office 
about, I guess, you know, modifying that, that program? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Modifying it is a nice way. Yes. Yeah, so I, I know <laughs> that's, that's unfortunately the PR made that's uh, talking there. So you're Go very, ahead. yes, you're very savvy. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're thinking about cutting it $46 million, I think is what I saw, um, which is devastating. And, you know, fair fares is something that we fought hard for. Um, it was an initiative first put forth um, by the Community Service Society and Riders Alliance. Um, we were, you know, a strong member of that coalition to win fair fares at the city level. Um, for those that aren't familiar, fair fares is a reduced fare program um, providing half price metro cards to New Yorkers living at or below the federal poverty line. Um, and I believe within the first few weeks of, of enrollment, it hit about 100,000 New York, uh, about 100,000 New Yorkers enrolled in the program. I don't know what the final number is as of today, but it was tremendously successful um, and, you know, something that we were really happy to see, especially as conversations around fare evasion um, and policing ramped up. We, we really supported this method of providing half-price fares to the New, York, New Yorkers that need it the most. Um, and I think moving out of, again, we have to think about the city that we're going to live in post-post COVID crisis, so many New Yorkers are unemployed or underemployed and are losing income um, and will need programs like this to be able to recover. And so to cut it is really devastating. Right. And I think that's the one thing where I think there's so many different variables that, you know, we don't know because we have no idea how long uh, this situation is right now. We have no mm -hmm. idea how long this pause order that the governor has uh, put into place uh, will be. Um, let's let's be a little bit more brighter at the end of this real quick. Um, yeah. So cause we're heading into, of course, the better part of spring. We're heading into summer. What's the one thing that you would love to do once you're out of this lockdown? Oh, my God. I have been thinking about that a lot. I, I, I don't know that I can narrow it down to one thing. Um but I guess, you know what, one thing is I cannot wait to see my family. Um, we have family not far away in, in Westchester County, um, but, you know, which is an area that's also been heavily impacted by this crisis. So we, we haven't been able to see each other. Um, and family that live in California, both my brother and my, my husband's siblings. So, um, so I'm excited to just get to see my family, get to go outside. Honestly, I'm excited to get to ride the subway again. I think that's something that a lot of New Yorkers have been really um, surprised at how much they miss, just that daily experience of convening with their fellow New Yorkers and feeling like we're part of one bigger system. That will be an amazing day. Jackie Cohen, again, from the Strap Hangers campaign. Thanks again for coming on, and I will see you soon once we are out of this lockdown dystopia that we all know as the age of corona. I'm looking forward to it, buddy. Thank you. Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on civmix.com.